Hey guys, what's up? It is week 312. Six year anniversary. Never missing a show. Always out on time. Yeah, I'm dying inside. I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, normally I'd have a prize. But I have to fix my car brakes and everything, so all that extra money is going towards, you know, my car right now currently. So the next couple of weeks, I'll have a prize up for everybody. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad you guys have been watching this long. If you are, if you're new or whatever, check out the old episodes. Uh, I've reviewed so many movies. Uh, I need to get a letterbox list of everything that's been covered on this show uh, or on the channel when, since I started doing the six, like the, the weekly kind of update thing. Now, for the 1981 like reviews, I know you're probably noticing there's a lot of heavy hitters missing. All those are going to be reviews with a bunch of different podcasters and film historians and friends and all that kind of stuff. So there'll be a mixture of people. Um, a couple of them will have more than one person, and we'll, we'll do those. You know, I have people lined up for all sorts of movies on that deal. Ones I love, ones I like, ones I'm iffy on, ones I haven't even seen. So that'd be pretty cool. So. The first one up that we're going to be talking about today is from 88 Films. And I, I got to admit, 88 Films has been doing a great job in the United States lately. I've been really excited about a lot of their output, a lot of the, you know, the Hong Kong action flicks. And this one is uh, Police Story 3 Super Cop. This is the 4K. It also comes with the Blu-ray, a booklet, all sorts of goodies in here. Two versions of the film. What is it? The Hong Kong cut, which is 96 minutes long, and the U.S. cut, which is 91 minutes long. They also have a bunch of different languages, Cantonese, different dubs, English, all that kind of stuff. So this stars Michelle Yao and Jackie Chan, and uh, who is it Maggie Chen? So yeah, of course, um, Michelle Yao's been get a lot of exposure with everything, everywhere, all at once. But also, it's really nice because 88 Films and a lot of these other companies, Arrow, have been putting out a lot of their like back catalog, a lot of their films that they you know are known for. Uh, Jackie Chan's had a lot of like recent exposure as well. Not that Jackie Chan ever needs it. Everybody knows who Jackie Chan is. But uh, the Super Cop, the Police Story movies, you know, believe it or not, I've never seen the first two. I know. Why am I talking about the third one? Dave, you're a dummy. Get off camera. But I know that uh, overseas i think eureka put out a, a 4k box set and um uh, criterion put out the first two which i'll have to pick up asap because to be honest i love this movie this was such a good mixture of comedy and action and high stakes just gunplay and martial arts so like just watching michelle yao and jackie chan together this is the first time they acted together which is really nice to see and i know they've done other films after this but uh yeah the plot is pretty wild you know jackie chan's like this super cop and he claims that all hong kong cops are super cops you know it's just kind of whatever which is fun and he's supposed to go through this really kind of delicate at training uh, and be taught by this mainland cop and uh, Michelle Yao and he goes through all this elaborate training and that's kind of like a fish out of water really funny hijinks ensue learning things and him showing off and he tells his girlfriend he's going to be away for a while right on vacation or supposedly but he's really going undercover on a highly dangerous mission so a lot of jokes and stuff play into that so his job is to kind of infiltrate in this prison camp and help this criminal escape hope hope in hopes that this criminal will take him to his underlayer or lead him to his boss because they're trying to cut back on where all the drugs are coming from and all that that kind of stuff as well right and there's a huge like drug cartel like elaborate group of villains and everything from different like countries it's 
pretty crazy. But Jackie Chan uh, and Michelle Yao kind of get entangled with this group, and they stay undercover as best as they can. Uh, a lot of the people from, I believe, uh, the previous films kind of jump in, uh, at least the commanding officers definitely from the previous films. A lot of other characters, you know, get stuck in, in this and stuff. Um, but what really sticks out besides Jackie Chan being hilarious and great at martial arts is Michelle Yao as well. Their chemistry is hilarious going back and forth. Um, and the play with the weapons and the martial arts stuff is really well done. But the bad guys are really solid in this film. The main bad guy is this drug lord, and his main goal is to kind of break his wife out of prison. I think she got... Um, where'd she get uh, 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 cake and capture? I can't remember. Malaysia? Um, where... Michelle Yao's originally from, so that's really cool. She gets to go back there, and like the country, like let them film everything according to the special features on there. So they basically want to break her out. That's also a big chunk here. But one of the huge set pieces is that um, the main villain in the film sets up this elaborate way to kind of take out the rival people competing to buy the drugs from this general. And what ensues is like a showstopper. It's one of the best scenes, high action, high violence. It's so crazy in these movies, right? You watch them. And they like sometimes they'll have like the fun tone, the playfulness of a almost a kid's family movie. And then the next second, people are getting blown away and shot by grenades and like shot by grenade launchers and all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, the bad guys are memorable. They're tough. They're they're entertaining. Uh, a lot of people take some really nasty spills. The end um, action sequences are insane. Um, on top of a train involving a helicopter. I mean. I love Darkman, but they put Darkman to shame with their stunts in comparison um, with their helicopter stunts in this one. Um, it just seems really dangerous. And, and like all, a lot of the Jackie movies, you see him take a lot of bumps in the credits and you see a lot of that kind of stuff. And it's you almost get a sense of community when you watch the credits on these movies. Regardless, I, I thought this was a tremendous movie with a great story, a great set of characters from the good guys to the bad guys, everybody in between. But uh, it's a lot of fun. It really is. There's car chases. Um, it never seems dull. It looks gorgeous in 4K. Uh, I thought it looked amazing. And the sound was pretty solid. I didn't notice a subwoofer going out as loud as I expected with a lot of the explosions. But uh, you got some original artwork right here. And like I said, an amazing booklet here. I'm going to pick up the first two police stories as, as, as fast as I can. And I'm becoming a really big fan of Jackie Chan. You know, I'd seen his, some of his American output in a couple movies here and there. But all these movies getting like these brand new amazing releases are really just kind of forcing me to put Jackie Chan at the front of my watch list and I'm not going to lie, I'm enjoying every second of it. Uh, so more Jackie Chan please, more Michelle Yao, all great stuff. Um, this one is amazing. Super Cop or Police Story 3. Uh, amazing 4K from 88 Films. Check it out. The next one up is from MVD Rewind Collection. And this is a weird one, guys. This is Vampire's Kiss from 1988. And I am well aware that this film has a cult following. And I think when it came out, it was kind of like a misunderstood, bizarre film. Um, and, and I kind of get that. I do see that. And while watching it for the first time, this is the first time watch, it was kind of like a blind spot for me. And I'm like, I don't know how to take this film. Nicolas Cage is in this, of course, and he's in his early 20s, right? But it has these kind of elements of like American Psycho. Like it's kind of this character who says he's bit by this bat and he starts to obviously go after blood. But he's also being manipulated by this, this vampire and he's also trying to date this other girl. And he's doing this weird kind of like yuppie style accent which I can never gather, uh, garner what the hell he's doing. But like if you listen to some of the commentary he mentions that his father kind of talked like that and he never understood why until he got older. And this weird kind of stuff all about that. And you're just like what in the hell is... This Nicholas Cage thinking, but 
it, it makes sense, and it makes for a really bizarre performance. And what people would accuse Nicolas Cage of doing and throughout his entire career is, you know, he swings for the fences a lot. A lot of times you're like, what is going on with this guy? And sometimes he knocks it out of the park in, like, Mandy or Raising Arizona or so many other movies. He's just really good at what he's doing. And other times the movie doesn't fit his performance or it's not good enough for it, just as uneven or the direction's not great. Other times you're just left baffled. Never really truly appalled by his performance, just baffled. And I was a little baffled by this movie in its entirety. You know, like it had some of the weird zany comedy of something like Once Bitten. But it also had that kind of like city style, almost gritty, not exactly style of like a Bell Ferreira's addiction. Or, or you know, some of the ones in that kind of vein where they're, um, what's the one from 1990, uh, Aja, uh, Naja, 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 more like that, because that has a sense of comedy to it, and so does Addiction, they do have some dark comedy in both of those movies, but, and, and it also felt strangely like kind of a Fright Night deal, um, I'm not sure how to take this movie because there's some de- some definite psychological stuff going on within the movie that's trying to say something maybe a little bit different than your typical run-of-the-mill vampire movie or even your typical big city kind of, uh, you know, meltdown vampire movie too. It's just a weird, bizarre one with a strange, weird quality about it. It's famous, obviously, because KJ Roach is in here, for real. Um, and, and this is an early performance by him. There's a commentary with Nicolas Cage and the director, and that was pretty interesting, them talking about the movie and, and bring up a lot of kind of stuff and how they approached it and the history of how the film got made. Originally, they had Nicolas Cage, and then they were going for somebody else. I think Judd Nelson, and he dropped out, and Cage called back, and they kind of did this whole thing like that, which was interesting. Jennifer Beals is also in here. Oh, Maria Conchita Alonso from stuff like The Running Man, um, and Predator 2, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, the way she's treated by Nicolas Cage in this movie is so bizarre and so strange um and and the movie comes boils down to like is it like a, a search for love in a lonely nihilistic New York or whatever city they're in LA I, I think it's in LA I'm not 100% sure what city they're in in this one see sometimes you, you know right off the bat or sometimes you forget I guarantee if I popped it in again I'd be like oh yeah 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 but here here's how it is this is a strange film and originally, I think they cut a lot of stuff out of this, and I don't know if it ever really was put back in. So it, it's a, it's a on, I don't want to say this. It is a little shaky to me. Like, I don't know how to take it, but it's just one of those ones that I guarantee grows on you as you see it more and more. If you saw it at a young age and you just kind of have the love and nostalgia for it, and then on top of that, you can see these weird kind of aspects in the film as well. It's Vampire's Kiss. Okay, the next up is from Severn Films, and we're going to tackle this whole box set, and this is uh, uh, Danza Macabra, Volume 1, Italian uh, Gothic Collection. I'd love to see more of these, of course. I love this kind of stuff, especially if you're a fan of Bava or you're a fan of the Hammer stuff. This stuff is perfect. It's, it's a great kind of, you know, uh, brother-sister piece with those films. So it's got four films in here, of course, Monster of the Opera, The Seventh Grave, Scream of the Demon Lover and Lady Frankenstein. And we're going to do the first one here, which I believe is a 60s film, 1964 black and white Italian one. You can only watch this in Italian with English subtitles. The Monster of the Opera. And this is actually directed by uh, Renato Pacelli, who did a bunch of movies. He did The Delirium from the 70s, which is a pretty wild movie. Uh, he also did, what, The Reincarnation of Isabella. And didn't he do Vampire and the Ballerina, if I'm not mistaken, which is also kind of a 60s gothic horror film, kind of early on in that run, um, which is an interesting film. But the monster of the opera, oh, I almost dropped it. I never had seen this one, and I had only heard about it in passing, so I put this in, and I was delighted to find out it's a vampire film that takes place kind of in an opera. It's kind of like a mixture of Phantom of the Opera and a, and a vampire flick, which is one that I always wanted to see made, you know, Vampire of the Opera, Phantom of the Opera versus 
Dracula. Or you could do, you know, Vampire of the Opera, whatever. It's a perfect movie. I, I basically writes itself to me. They both have their eyes on, you know, um, the, the main lady here. She sings beautifully, but she looks like somebody Dracula used to love. So, of course, they're setting uh, the, the Phantom set booby traps for Dracula. All, it's all sorts of beautiful things. Sorry, I'm getting off on a tirade here, but the monster of the opera. Here we go. So, what we have here is, of course, this is an old opera. Nobody's been using it for a long time. We have a troupe in here. They're all introduced. Pretty, pretty fun, actually. They have, like, these kind of characters where they're all introduced to to the audience and of course to another character where you have all of them and they're all said a little bit there's like the the girl who's always making jokes she's kind of really quirky and you realize this opera's been shut down and there's been some weird things that happened here it reminds me a lot of there was a giallo where they were doing this play and they all got stuck in there and they started getting picked off here and there i can't remember the name uh it was in one of the uh, vinegar syndromes forgotten jolly box set if i'm no it was in the arrow the third Giallo box set, which I cannot recall its name, but also the same kind of plot, the stage fright, right? But that's more of a slasher-esque, less Giallo, but slasher, both Italian films. And that those are more straightforward. This one obviously has a supernatural bend to it. Um, so, so what happens is things start to fall like a bell, and um, there is a character in the film that is the caretaker of the opera, but he is very, very old, and he has been working in this opera for a very long time, and he's been caretaking more than just the opera itself you know the the place uh so, so we have this whole element and of course there every certain year when there's an opera somebody disappears right and there you find out this elaborate story that this this vampire was cursed here and it's an elaborate backstory very gothic right uh forbidden love but Anyways, it's up to a couple characters to try to stop this vampire. There's really cool stuff involving the painting and different kind of like hidden layers and the supernatural aspect. Um, I, I like this one because it opens up in this kind of fantastical fantasy little world and everything, and it mixes reality and fantasy. And the setting's really great. The idea of the vampire and the opera picking on you know the people in the in the the opera itself are, is a really cool idea. It looks gorgeous. You know, it's black and white uh, remastered. As far as the special features are concerned, we have audio commentary with Cat Ellinger. Can't go wrong with her. Tara at the Opera interview with screenwriter Ernesto Gastaldi, who wrote everything. Uh, Componi Monte Gothic interview with Italian film Dovi uh, devotee uh, Mark Thomas Thompson uh, Ashworth, and he talks about how he thinks Poselli is basically an auteur, the way he has these themes that pop up in his early films and everything like that. And then uh, Radio Poselli archival audio interview with director Renato Poselli, who's since, of course, passed in a French trailer. So rarely do you get to see an opera kind of gothic-style vampire flick from the 60s in Italy. So this is a good one. Probably my second favorite in the set. I would recommend checking this one out for sure. Okay, the next one in the set is The Seventh Grave. This is from 65. Also black and white. No English dub on this one. Um, Yeah. 65 like i said only uh, in italian so this one is a bit interesting now this director i think had only done one other movie or this was his only directed film so like you go to look it up and see who did it and you're like i don't know that name um so this one is is very gothic in the sense that everybody is meeting in this small little village it's a period piece of course and uh, they're there to read a will it doesn't get more gothic than that a big of course beautiful castle and they're looking to read a will so, of course, five or six different people show up. We have kind of the lawyer and everything putting it together. And before long, strange things start to happen, right? Um, they they kind of reveal that this 
place has a dark kind of history. Um, there's like experiments, all sorts of weird stuff going on here. One of the people never shows up. So it leaves a sense of mystery. Who is actually going to start picking these people off? Is it the per the guest that's supposedly dead? Is it somebody that uh, is grave is empty? Of course, you know, it's the seventh grave after all. All these kind of things start to play into that kind of deal. And of course, we have, uh, you know, the reveals at the end and all the characters and the greed. Um, this is a very straight, I don't even say straightforward gothic because it mixes and blends all sorts of things here. It has like the atmosphere that you necessarily don't always get with a gothic film, but it has almost a giallo bend as well. And if I'm not mistaken, it's got even more bizarre tropes than that. I mean, the crypt looks really nice. Um, this one is bizarre and weird and different. And I think that the first two acts are a little bit stronger. Um, I do like that they have a pretty cool seance in here, uh, and the, which a priest partakes in. I don't think that would happen nowadays. But uh, as the special features are concerned, we have an audio commentary with Rachel Nisbet film critic and co-host of Fragments of Fear, Seventh Graves and a Mystery, interview with film historian Fabio Malelli, English aesthetic with Giallo Blood, video essay by Gothic scholar and author Rachel Knightley. So, yeah, any, anyways, uh, there's some pretty memorable people in here. When I was listening to the commentary by Nisbet, she pointed out, like, the guy, and I was like, what is that guy from? And one of the guys in here, um, Antonio Caselli, he plays Bill Carson in Good to Bad and Ugly. And right when I, they, she pointed it out, I was like, oh, how could I forget? He's the guy who gives the big speech to El Tuco in the bathtub. And uh, when you want to talk, talk. Uh, when you want to shoot, shoot. Don't talk. You know that whole brilliant scene? He's in here, and he's an asshole in this movie. Um, he's just so greedy. Like, you can see the greed on there. And I really like the scene where they're in the, like, tavern. Very, very hammer horror, right? Or universal when you walk into that small town in the tavern, and everybody's like, what are they here for? What do they want? It's very, very kind of gothic trope stuff. But um, I enjoy that kind of shit. You know, I eat that stuff up. And with a box set called, you know, about Italian gothic horror, that's exactly what you want. Okay, the next one up is from 1970. And I covered this one before. And this is Scream of the Demon Lover. Yeah, and when I watched it for 1970, I was a little a little mixed on it. This time around, I liked it a little better. You know, that comes with, you know, just not watching so many movies from the same period. Sometimes you get a little jaded. And also, you know, the quality obviously has been majorly improved on the Severn Blu-ray. And, you know, familiarity. And you kind of see things you didn't normally see here. So we have here is another period piece. And we have a uh, kind of this guy. He runs this castle. He's looking for a, a chemist or a biochemist or something along those lines to come and fill this position so they can continue these experiments. Kind of another gothic thing here, right? So this beautiful woman shows up, and she's almost raped. She's almost raped right away by this like creepy like stagecoach driver, right? And she kind of fights off his advances, and somebody helps her out, you know, the Baron or whatever. I, and she goes in to the castle eventually, and he says, I want you gone. I'm willing to pay you one month's salary to leave, two months, three months. Keeps going up and up. She's like, I'm not leaving. I'm principal, yada, yada, yada. And there seems to be another strange woman there, and you can tell that, uh, I keep calling him the Baron, but the guy who runs this castle basically had a thing with this lady and and you kind of get the uh, element that he's his ladies man of course there's a bunch of women disappearing in the area and the village they're dying and all signs point to this guy uh, there's a part of the castle that's completely blocked off, and it's supposedly in ruins, right? Uh, and after a long time, the cops start to investigate, and she starts to have strange, bizarre nightmares about kind of a, a clawed killer and this weird kind of aspect. And you either coming to conclusion that is who who's our killer can be one of a few things, right? Uh, this one's pretty decent. Uh, there's plenty of nudity and sleaze in this one. This one probably is the second sleaziest, and it has some pretty solid effects. The castle is a nice little 
location. Um, the lead guy is all right. Uh, yeah, this one's solid. Uh, it, I feel like it might end slightly abruptly, right? But it does kind of lean you into being this way, possibly, and go this way. Like, you think it may be a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or a werewolf story, but it's not quite that. It's a little bit different. So, uh, as far as the comment, I mean, the commentaries and the special features, we have audio commentaries Rod Bar- uh, Barnett, film historian and co-host of NashyCast, and Robert Monell, writer and editor of the um, uh, In a Jess Franco State of Mind. And they kind of talk about some of the players in here, and they reference a lot of Mario Bava, things like that. Scream, Emma Scream, interview with actress Erna Scherner. In the Castle of Love, video essay by Stephen Thrower, author of books on Jess Franco and Lucio Fulci. And anybody knows Stephen Thrower, he has a lot to say about a lot of cult films. And I believe this one was like 44 minutes long, and he talks a lot about the film and everything and the elements. And of course, this is another gothic thing here. This is like the most gothic trope. If you told me, paint one picture on there, I'd be like, well, it's a, a scantily clad or a girl in her nightgown walking around a dark castle with, uh, you know, a, a, a multiple candlestick thing. What do they exactly call those? But that's exactly the thing I think. What is the one with uh, Kamel Keaton with the cover? Tragic Ceremony has the same cover. It's such a beautiful image of just having somebody walking down this dark corridor castle um, with candles in their hands looking for it, you know? So anyways, this one's solid. It's a solid one. Um, probably my, I don't know. It's probably tied with Seventh Grave, you know. There's one that I adore in this set, and uh, it's just a brilliant one. So we'll get to that one after this. Okay, now finally, the last, but certainly not the least, the, the crown jewel of the set, if you ask me, from 1971, Lady Frankenstein, directed by Mel Wells. He was an American actor, but working in Italy. Mel Wells played the owner uh, the the plant shop in Little Shop of Horrors, the original 60s, 1960 Corman picture. So you guys would know him. He worked on tons of films, helped on dubbing in Italy and America. He's just a, an actor and a director and a filmmaker who's worked a lot. Very interesting, cool guy. This was produced by Roger Corman as well for the American release and all that stuff. Stuff. But uh, this starred uh, Rosalba Neri, and this is because the big producer behind it, uh, Henry Cushing, who had a lot of money, was obsessed with her and wanted her to star in it. But she's in a slew of, uh, you know, a couple horror films, a lot of spaghetti westerns, all that kind of stuff. She's in a ton of movies, very recognizable. And she's tremendous in this movie. It also has uh, Paul Mueller in here, who is in like six, oh, he's in all five of Jess Franco's movies from 1970. He's in a lot of movies. He's in Jess Franco's Count Dracula. He plays Dr. Seward. He's in a lot of movies. You'd recognize him right away. It also has Herbert Fox in here from Mark of the Devil and a million other, you know, horror exploitation movies at the time. And I know I'm probably missing a lot of people. Joseph Cotton plays Barry. Aaron Von Frankenstein, he's great in here. Joseph Cotton, I recently have been watching some movies he's in. Of course, he's in Baron Blood from Mario Bava and a bunch of classic films, but he popped up in um, The Hearst from 1980, and he's in Delusion in 1981. And he's just in, and he's in the, uh, the, uh, the Euro crime film by Umberto Lenzi with Tomas Milan. He's just in a slew of movies, and he's really good in this one. He's a very happy Dr. Frankenstein, if you know what I mean. So basically, of course, it's a Frankenstein story, right? Um, and uh, Joseph Cotton Cotton's daughter is Rosalba Neri, and she is kind of the demented one of the film. So about the first 30, 40 minutes of the film, Joseph Cotton, he, he checks out of the movie. Spoiler, sorry, but it's kind of known that it's called Lady Frankenstein, right? And the monster escapes on the countryside and starts killing everybody. Paul Mueller, who is basically being charmed by Neri, agrees to help cover the murder up and try to hide the monster and everything like that. While the monster runs around the countryside, killing all the grave diggers and the people that were responsible for giving him life, including, you know, some of the, some of the shadier characters of the film. And what happens is her idea is no, we not to stop the monster or get the monster and like you know preserve it. 
her idea is to create another monster, aka also a sex slave. So the the story is just sleazy and crazy and ridiculous. There's a fair amount of nudity in here. The Frankenstein monster looks pretty funny. He's got a big bulbous head and he's kind of memorable. He's kind of gross, but at the same time he's kind of cheap, which is a lot of this movie. It's a Roger Corman produced movie, so the set is kind of like a little chintzy sometimes, a little cheap at times. But this one is an absolute blast. All the characters are great. All the uh, special effects are fun at the very least. Um, I enjoyed this one a lot. I love the take on the Frankenstein story. I love that uh, the daughter of the Frankenstein is the one kind of pushing forward all the, the horrible incidents, you know. So many times do you see, you know, the same old kind of Dr. Frankenstein, although the Cushing movies are amazing, his performance is amazing. It was nice to see a lady kind of fill the shoes because you always have like the daughter of Dracula and you have different monsters being different kind of genders, but have I ever seen a female Baron von Frankenstein? And I can't say I have, so it's kind of unique. And uh, there's a great commentary on here by Kat Ellinger and uh, Rose uh, Malmet, and they talk a lot about, you know, how Frankenstein's novel was written by a female, Mary Shelley, of course, and how it's a very female-driven story giving birth, all this kind of stuff, and the idea that the Frankenstein mythos and stories and all that shit has geared more towards males, it's nice to see something different, Lady Frankenstein, and they also just love how uh, sexually crazy it is, and how Neri is just such, like, a perverse kind of character. And they do talk about Countess Dracula that was made around the same time with Ingrid Pitt, which is a fantastic Hammer movie, and all sorts of things like that. So, this originally was supposed to be Lady Dracula, which did get made a few years down the line, but they didn't want to sell the script and all this stuff, so they kind of developed this fairly quick. I, I love uh, Joseph Cotton, like I said in here, Paul Mueller's solid as well. The the uh, basically the ending is abrupt but fitting and Neri's great too um, geez I, I have to mention that Romano Pupo is in here as one of the villagers as well as it's funny because in the last shark from 81 there's the, the mayor and the mayor um, and Romano Pupo are both in this, and both in the last shark, and they both get killed by the shark. This one, they both try to stop the Frankenstein monster. And there is a monster brawl, even though one of them you really can't call a monster. But uh, I would really recommend Lady Frankenstein. It's my favorite of the four. And as far as features are concerned, it has the most. I think a lot of the stuff was ported over from the old Nucleus release. So besides that commentary I previously mentioned, we have audio commentary with Alan Jones, author of Dario Gento, The Man, The Myth, and The Magic, and Kim Newman, author of Nightmare Movies. Meet the Baroness, featurette with uh, actress Rosalba Neri and film historian Fabio Malini. Piecing together Lady Frankenstein, that was nice to see. There's interviews and stuff with Mel Wells. The Lady in the Orgy, documentary short on director Mel Wells. The Truth About Lady Frankenstein, German TV doc. Clothed insert shots, video sport short illustrating BBFC censorship cuts, Italian opening credits, uh, Big Film Magazine, the Italian Lady Frankenstein photo novel, extensive image gallery, home video gallery, video spots, TV spots, and trailers. Uh, this is loaded, and this is the best of the bunch. Enjoyed it quite a bit. Lady Frankenstein, 1971. All right, guys. We're going to hop into those 1981 movies. Woe be unto him who opens one of the seven gateways to hell, because through that gateway, evil will invade the world.
Valentine's Day is a curse that'll live on and on. And no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago. In this little town, when the 14th comes round, there's a silence and fear in the air. Remember the morn that the legend was born, all the shock and the horror was there. Or oh, the legend they say on a Valentine's Day is a curse that'll live on and on. And no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago. And no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago. First up is on 4 fucking K. That's right. Dark Force Entertainment putting out 4Ks. One from 1981. It's a slasher film. It is Scream. And no, it's not the 1996 Scream. Of course, it's the 81 one, like I said. Now, this they put this out on DVD. Code Red put this out on DVD. They had a Blu-ray. And all these times, I was like, you know what? I never watched Scream. I had heard always such terrible things. People were like, the worst slasher, the most boring slasher ever made. You know what? I'll take a boring 80s slasher over a, a 90s boring slasher or a 2000s boring slasher or a modern day boring slasher any day. I will watch it gladly. Give me Home Sweet Home. Give me Scream. Give me the final exam. I don't care. I'll watch them all. But uh, yeah, so Scream. I put this in, and I didn't really know exactly what to expect. I had heard some some negative things about it. The 4K looked pretty solid. I know that it was a 16, shot on 16mm and blown up to 35, but this is remastered from the original 16 negative, or the elements they had on 4K, no HDR. But that's fine. It sounded pretty good, and it looked fairly solid. I've always heard this movie looks pitch black. You can't see what's going on. I didn't have that issue on 4K, so... It is a darker film, though, but most of it takes place at night. We have a group of about 12 people, and their goal, I guess, is to go to this old west kind of town that seems completely abandoned with absolutely nothing to do. And it's like a work getaway group, and they have a couple guides, and they're going to camp there for a couple nights. The first night they're there, um, one of their better character actors of the movie gets killed. Um, and you kind of notice that in this movie, it, it tends to, they, they, and the director of the commentary mentions that they're like, well, why did all these like, you know, like you had a, a group of a handful of character actors, all pretty solid, all, you know, from old John Ford Westerns and shit. Why you kill them off? He's like, well, you know, you have them for a couple days. That's what you can afford. But that's, that's the one problem. One of the problems with the movie is they kill off their best characters and the best actors in the, in the beginning. So if you have a, a couple of deaths right away, you know, three deaths and, a, and then we kind of lay low a little bit and they start picking up again. Um, the kill is kind of mysterious they don't really get into it you know what was that one slasher that was kind of like really vague um satan's blade i feel like it had some similarities to satan's blade which i think is an 82 slasher um but you know is it a better made it's around the same element you know it's the same kind of strange little uh slasher film now the director had come from a stunt background he wasn't like a big time movie guy he just kind of fell on the stunts and started making movies later so he's not like this film obsessed like nerd but he does know a lot of the stunt guys a lot of the guys that worked on westerns and things like that so that's who's in his movies that's kind of what he talks a little bit about in the commentary as well and stunts of course 
So there's not that many like elaborate stunts in here. Somebody getting thrown through a wall, but it's essentially just a group of people being picked off at night in this kind of isolated area where they can't get back. Um, Woody Strode shows up. Of course, everybody loves Woody Strode from uh, Kingdom of the Spiders and The Professionals and a million other movies. Uh, Once About a Time in the West. And he, he's good in it. It's a very small role, very bizarre role. Like I said, there is a couple guys you recognize by their faces in the very beginning of the film. One of John Wayne's kids is in here. Um, so yeah, um, the one problem besides, you know, the, the ineptness certain in the story, which I can get over and them killing off their better actors in the beginning, but that's obviously for another clear reason that they can't afford some of the better actors forever is that the characters are ungodly stupid and they just don't act too human. But complaining about that in a slasher movie is like, Hey, newsflash, you know, you got to separate them, but they could have separated them a little better at times. So like there's scenes where like a one person is murdered and the other person's like, I'm going to get a beer. Or it's a cooler. It's over there. And, like, he goes out in the night, and no one goes with him, and he gets killed. And then, like, later, some other old guy's wandering around by himself, and you're like, what the fuck? And he gets killed. And then later, some guy's like, I have to piss. Will you come with me? He's like, so? Why are you being so scared? It's like, bro, are you a fucking moron? Also, these are abandoned, like, sheds. Just piss in the corner. Who gives a shit? If I'm going to pee right in the corner in front of everybody, I'm like, sorry, not getting killed. Peeing right here. Cool? Nope. Fuck off. Don't care. But it's just like writing that you're just like, what is this? It's just like silly writing. At the very end, uh, the killer does kind of invade and a couple people, you know, bite it in like quick succession. It's okay. It, it's okay. I don't want to even call it standard because I know in 81, there was a lot of high, you know, high like standards for slashers because you had My Bloody Valentine, The Burning, Halloween 2, Friday 13th 2. You had a lot of good slashers. Happy birthday to me. So like this isn't on their level, but it's on the level of some of the other ones that came out later in the later day slasher cycle. And, you know, I don't think it's shot in a bad location. I don't think it's poorly shot, poorly scored, any of that stuff. You know, the early actors, the character actors are pretty solid. There's a couple actors in here that are good. Um, but it's not the knock your kind of socks off movie that you would expect. But if you have always wondered um, what the hell's going on in the screen, if you watch it on DVD or something that had bad quality, which I, I would know, then then pick up the, the 4K. You know, it looks fairly solid for a low-budget movie shot on 16mm. I thought it looked pretty good. Um, as far as the special features are concerned, we have, of course, um, audio commentary with director Brian uh, Quislinberry, and uh, he seems like an interesting guy. Although you hear Bill Olson in the background talking, which is kind of cool. Uh, R.I.P. Bill Olson from Code Red, and you have the person who's interviewing him, who kind of doesn't seem to get as much out of him as he should. If that, he's kind of going off the tangent. But you know, I don't know how easy this guy was to in- interview or anything like that. Then, of course, we have play this in Maria's B movie Mayhem mode. You know, you guys remember those like drive-in kind of section things they used to do. But anyways, that is Scream on 4K. The first, I believe, that uh, that uh, Dark Force put out. Maybe maybe they put out Final Exam or, or Dead Pit first. I'm not sure, but it's one of their first. So yeah, check out Scream. All right, next up from 1981 is The Fan, starring Lauren Bacall, classic screen actress, Michael Biehn, James Garter, Gardner, and uh, who else is in here? I feel like I'm missing somebody. One of the classic old actresses in here. So this uh, movie, uh, I've seen before. It's been a long time. Don't confuse it with the 90s fan with Wesley Snipes and De Niro or Durfan, the 80s kind of crazy German one, if I'm not mistaken. This one, uh, 81. Now, this is kind of in the deal. Uh, this is more of like a thriller kind of following Lauren Bacall as like this old school, beautiful actress. And now she's like kind of like preparing for her first musical. 
and she's like recently separated from her husband and James Gardner. Um, so she's like kind of in this weird kind of limbo kind of state. She has an obsessed fan in Michael Biehn, very early role for him. He's in his early 20s. And, you know, Michael Biehn would go on to be in The Terminator, The Abyss, Aliens, Tombstone, Navy Seals, The Divide, Deadfall, tons and tons of movies. I am a big fan of Michael Biehn. I always thought he was great. Um, so he's pretty good in this movie. He's very scary, uh, very bizarre. And originally, this movie is more of a thriller, kind of focusing on Lauren Bacall. But as they say in the special features, uh, Dress to Kill and like stuff like Friday the 13th did really well in 1980. So this one, they kind of changed the script a bit, upsetting Lauren Bacall and some of the other people involved, and made it more of a slasher-oriented film. Similar to like Eyes of a Stranger, right, from the same year. But Eyes of a Stranger is definitely more of a horror film, more of a slasher film than The Fan. I think The Fan is more of a thriller and a drama first, and then maybe some horror stuff in here as well. Now, it's like a logical and kind of a slasher at the same time it turns into a slasher. So um, Laura McCall's going through her life, trying to learn the play, the musical, struggling with relationships, you know, and all this, and James Garter. At the same time, we have the dichotomy of Michael Bean, who is clearly delusional. You see moments where he has a small interaction with his family where you realize that he is delusional. You know, there's no, he's like, I'm having a dinner with a beautiful actress. And he's like, no, you're not. It's not okay to lie like this anymore. You're an adult. All this kind of stuff like that. It reminds me of a bit of Fade to Black from the previous year, where we have the unhinged movie fan kind of using his favorite films to get revenge on the people that that ruined his life or so what he sees ruined his life right that kind of element where he has these delusions of grandeur and michael bean has them as well so as he writes more and more and basically he's not getting the reply he wants um and he kind of starts to argue with the secretary here and there he starts to lash out and attack people that are close in lauren mccall's life and eventually targeting her for the finale there is a pretty mean-spirited or crazy i should say scene where somebody's throat is slit and set on fire um there's a couple deaths here and there maybe not the most realistic uh deaths in terms of anatomy of course but uh they, they work for the most part um now like i said the ending's powerful and well shot and it, the zoom out is good stuff um laura mccall is always solid james garter's solid michael bean kind of steals the show here i think he's the best part especially in his end monologue yeah um and, and kind of a really kind of depressing or sad moment to a certain extent you kind of hear his first letter to laura mccall and which is funny because that's what they're looking for, the police officer and Hector Elizadano, who is a great actor as well. He's in a great Tales from the Crib episode. He's in Leviathan, you know, uh, 321, uh, taking, the Taking of Pathalum 321. So, like, it's got a great cast in here. So, as, as far as the special feature are concerned, we have a new interview with Michael Bean, and uh, he didn't get along with Lauren Bacall. New interview with director Edward Bianchi. They do repeat some of the same stories. New interview with editor Alan Hem. New audio commentary with cult film director David Decodu and film historian David Del Val. That should be a lot of fun. Didn't get a chance to listen to that, but that's got to be funny. Those two, um, this one does have a gay following because there is a gay scene in there, and the Michael Bean character obviously has some sort of repressed sexuality in here but uh yeah this is a really solid film i would recommend checking it out it's not perfect it's less horror than one would think from the um basically from what everyone says or the letterbox whatever but it's kind of a horror film more of a thriller all right the next up is tattoo from 1981 again starring bruce dern and this again is more in line with something like windows from 1980 or, or even the fan, which I just mentioned, where you have an obsessed, kind of damaged psychologically character who's damaged psychologically become obsessed with somebody, and that's all they focus on until they lash out and do something horrifically awful. 
So this one, uh, Bruce Dern is a tattoo artist who seems to have kind of an interest in Japanese style art, uh, you know, dragon tattoos, all these kind of like elaborate, I, I don't want to say Yakuza tattoos, but they seem to be kind of in that vein. He has an obsession with that to a certain extent, and he's just a bizarre fellow. He recently lost his father, who is an abusive father, and he's in the process of selling his family home. Now, you can tell that he's had kind of a troubled life uh, and he's had these kind of um, these morality issues hit into his head about treating someone in a certain way. But he also has that violence that he inherited from his father and maybe that those mor- mor- morals weren't exactly, you know, correct or whatever, you know, and you know what I mean. So basically he is approached one day by this young girl and says, well, your art's really good. Would you like to come in and do some body painting? Um, for a model shoot and he's kind of, he, he decides to do it and he shows up and there's this model that he's kind of obsessed with that he sees on television here and there that is there and he becomes instantly infatuated. And at first she has some sort of like shaky kind of maybe positive feelings towards him. But as it goes on, she, she kind of registers, obviously this isn't going to work out as Bruce Dern shows some more under a little bit of his mask or a little bit of his facade. I wouldn't even say that. He just shows a little bit more of himself that she would want to want to see his possessiveness, his obsessiveness. And uh, she tries to cut, cut him off. And that obviously doesn't end well. And it's called Tattoo for a reason. You know, think Strangeland. There's a little bit of that, but it's not in the same kind of reasoning or element. There's definitely something about him tattooing that is is unique and special to him now this was supposed to get put out on blu-ray from screen factory shop factory and then it was canceled and delayed and delayed and delayed and it just never happened so i don't know if there's rights issues element issues but bruce dern is really solid and it gives a really uh well-grounded and dimensional like three-dimensional performance if you're looking at him and how he has to handle it not an easy role to play uh the rest of the acting is solid there's some nudity here and there and stuff but a lot of the nudity is not sexual it's kind of just you know uh, somebody being tattooed against her well is obviously not sensual but uh or, or anything like in those in that vein but uh tattoo 1981 and the last one from 1981 is from jackie kong now some people list this as 83 we're going with 81 internet movie database and this is the bean that's right and it's been a long time since i watched the bean and this has martin landau in it everybody loves martin landau has jose ferrer in here as well uh, both great character actors. Now, Martin Landau, the year previous, was in Without Warning and The Return by Graydon Clark. Um, I think he's in The Return as well. And next year, after The Bean, he would end up being in Alone in the Dark uh, by Jack Shoulder, which is a really fun movie. Now, Martin Landau is really funny in this. And this one takes place in Idaho, which is a rare. It's rare that a horror movie takes place in Idaho. It's even more rare that it's an Easter horror film. Before Critters 2, in 1981, we have an Easter horror film directed by Jackie Kong, who would go on to do Night Patrol and, of course, Blood Diner from 87, 88, which is a really fun, crazy take on uh, Blood Feast. So, um, The Beat. Okay, this is a bizarre film. Uh, there starts to be, this this kid disappears and uh, other people start to disappear. And right in the opening, somebody is killed in the junkyard, a young kid, their head is ripped off by some sort of creature. So we kind of fast forward and we, not even fast forward, we kind of just go in chronological order. Although sometimes it's supposed to be day and it's night and you're like, what is going on? I don't think I care. But uh, after that, we kind of realize that there's more than one person missing in this town. There's a strange woman that's wandering around looking for her missing son everywhere the monster or the, the bean starts to appear. Uh, the main cop in here was actually the producer of the film and he was dubbed over. And he was dubbed over by James Keach, Stacy Keach's brother. Learned that in the commentary. That's interesting. Originally wanted Harry Dean Stanton, but the producer thought that he should do the acting role. 
and Martin Lando basically said he was the worst actor he ever had to work with in terms of like acting, which is funny because I, I he's he's not great, but the ADR doesn't help. Maybe he sounds even worse with the ADR. Maybe it does really help. But uh, there's some really cute moments in the movie. Like there's a drive-through scene where people are watching a monster on the drive-in screen, and of course the monster in real life attacks a, a couple of people that are smoking weed. That works well. Um, and the end climax is fun too in a warehouse. But the movie just kind of jumps in a lot of places. It does have kind of like a 50s aesthetic, at least in terms of like plot structure, where the monster is in the small town, and yada, 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 disappears, all that kind of stuff. We've seen that kind of stuff before. But what's funny is there's obviously a comedy element, right? Martin Landau is just hired by the company to tell everybody that the drinking water, the dumping, the nuclear waste is safe, and he does it with a straight face. You're thinking this is like a trauma film with the villains, right, who are always obsessed, like telling you nuclear and toxic waste is fine, it's good. But this shit's very funny. He's like, listen, this stuff is safe. You could drink the water. And we've had a mayor in Toledo actually drink the water. And then he was like dead two days later. So you're like, I don't know if that's correlation, but it doesn't look good. So it's just very funny how like he riles behind like stopping porno in the small town with like the Bible thumping mayor's wife, all this kind of stuff here. Right. And, and like, you really kind of don't focus. She's obviously making a comment about politicians, not focusing on what is the current danger and kind of side panning it to something that really in reality is harmless or doesn't even And if it's not harmless, it has nothing to do with the issue we're talking about. But uh, The Bean, yeah, this is a a semi-solid movie. It's fun, especially for a first film, especially for a low-budget film. I mean, you could do a lot worse than The Bean. The opening is, again, probably the strongest point, which is upsetting. And and we have that element where you're like, they're supposed to go there today, and why is it the next day, or why is it night now, or it was just night, now it's day, now it's night, and the same, like, 20 minute like the same time frame but uh if you like the bean check it out i if you like monster movies you're obsessed with them check it out there's a really bizarre dream sequence as far as the special features are concerned we have a brand new audio commentary with uh, director jackie uh, kong and then another one with star johnny dark and the patreon pick here is um sunset boulevard from art figurito i believe and this is 1950 of course directed by billy wilder now the billy wilder movies i have seen of course are some like it hot and um the apartment which are both really good films. And the one, this is from 1950. Like I said, I recently watched Gun Crazy from 1950 and loved it. Uh, no different for um, Sunset Boulevard. It stars um, Gloria Swanson, who is a classic silent actress. She's kind of playing a semi rendition of herself. Not exactly, but, you know, she hangs out with old kind of silent actors, including Buster Keaton, which is cool. So William Holden is a down on his luck uh, scriptwriter. Um, William Holden's in such great films as The Wild Bunch and Omen 2 and The Revengers and some really big uh, heavy hitter films as well. But uh, essentially what happens is he shows up here because his car's breaking down and they think that he's the funeral guy and he's brought a coffin for this monkey or something like that, a chimpanzee that she has. And right off the bat, you realize that Gloria Swanson is just kind of off. She's not right. Um, The butler there is very stern and bizarre as well. And uh, after a while, she starts to talk to him. And of course, he's a writer and she's looking for someone to adapt her memoirs into a film. And so they start to a shaky relationship. And you get a lot of noir-style narration from William Holden. And you can just tell William Holden, like, he, he wants to take advantage of her as terms of money and stuff, but he's not going to go all the way. Like, he's a much better character than you actually expect him to be, um, especially when you look at how the film opened up. It's got, obviously, it opens up with the ending and talks about it. Yeah, you can make a comment about your, your life, all this kind of stuff like that. But William Holden is amazing. His dialogue is amazing. His charm is amazing. In fact, uh, Gloria Swanson, she overacts, but that's... And exactly 
how she's supposed to act. She comes in the silent era film, but also at the same time, she's completely delusional and not there. But there's some really depressing moments where she gets back on the old lot uh, where she used to work and all these like crew members and film film, uh, actors and stuff come over and start talking to her. That's where you have uh, Cecil B. DeMille in the actual playing himself. And you say, I'm ready for my close up comes from this movie. So much memorable moments, so many memorable scenes. Um, and William Holden is top notch in here as is Gloria Swanson. This, this movie right here would basically be responsible for spawning the old bitty kind of subgenre, right? Like whatever happened to baby Jane, hush, hush, sweet Charlotte, all those kind of movies like that. And, uh, it, it definitely feels like she's a big precursor to stuff like I don't know how early you know the unhinged Joan Crawford the unhinged Betty Davis um, there's tons of features on this disc and watched a handful of them they're really good uh, we have deleted scenes Sunset Boulevard the beginning I look back the north side of Sunset Boulevard Sunset Boulevard becomes a classic and it sure does great stuff I uh, loved it uh, it's a required viewing I wish I would have watched it years ago all right let's do some questions comments concerns all that good stuff Ken Coakley I saw The Last Shark, the now-defunct Alston Cinema in 81 under the title Great White before Universal had it pulled. One of the victims was Ennio uh, Gilarlami, Ennio Castellari's brother. Another one was Massimo Vanni, who lost both of his legs. Another victim was the mayor, played by John Lafardo, who directed Patrick Swayze's last film. That guy is also in uh, uh, Lady Frankenstein. But, um, geez, Massimo Vanni is in everything, right? Massimo Vanni is like the ultimate stuntman, as well as Romano Pupo. They're both in this. Um, Universal got their revenge by ripping off this movie by killing the shark by using a grenade two years later in Jaws 3. There was one coincidence between Great White and the book Jaws, and Great White, Vic Morrow, is hanging out of the shark's mouth, and in the book Jaws, Hooper, after being killed by the shark, is also hanging out of the shark's mouth. Brody tries to shoot the shark. He ends up hitting Hooper's body. As for the use of the Confederate flag in the film, it didn't really bother people as much as it does today. I do know this. I am aware of this for sure. The Dukes of Hazard was still on prime time, and the car had the Confederate flag design. What gets me is why are they using the Confederate flag in California? I also do know about the Dukes of Hazard. Kind of when that flag was on the the Dukes of Hazard, it was more of a, a, a people just looked at it as a rebel thing against you know uh, the mainstream or whatever. Um, time change everything, right? Time really does change. Um, context is everything, and yeah, why in California? Like, I it's so. Weird. Uh, Italian filmmakers just mix and match American culture, of course. The Gates of Hell takes place in Dunwich, Massachusetts, a fictitious town that serves as an idiom for Salem, Massachusetts. As a native of Massachusetts, I am a loyal fan of the Boston Red Sox and dislike the New York Yankees. Just about everyone in Massachusetts dislikes the Yankees, yet the boy in Gates of Hell is wearing a Yankees jacket. <laughs> you're right. Uh, collectionist TV. Like, you're just like, that kid must have been so unpopular. No wonder he fucking cracks the goddamn movie screen at the end uh collectivist tv i'm so glad thanksgiving has become an actual feature i'm looking forward to it as well ilk vomit jonathan kwan data from goonies grew up in the city i myself live in when he was a kid in elementary school my grandmother was his ta and she always told me how she remembered how he would tell her he was going to be a big movie star my grandmother knew him before he got cast in indiana jones that's awesome my grandma passed away in 2020 and watching the Oscars together was something we always did. I know for a fact she would have been ecstatic to see him on stage when he won the Oscar this year. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, Nick Mua, so happy that uh, some of my fellow Mr. Parker followers like John Carpenter's Fog as much as I do. It's an underrated gem. Carpenter himself isn't overly fond of it. Is he fond of anything? Uh, great show as always, especially your exploration of action films from the Far East. I reached out to Second Sight and the delivery problem was solved. They communicate well with their customer base. Very heartwarming in the age of online bots and AI. For sure. Questions. Who's the worst home media distributor when it comes to communication with the customer? I know a lot of people have a problem with Massacre Video, but 
That's just so they announce stuff and don't release it. I've never really had trouble myself. Um, as far as communication, I'm trying to think. Um, geez, Media Blasters back in the day. This is like like 20 years ago. Zero customer service. Now it's different, I'm sure. Will John Carpenter ever make another movie? Should he? Um, why not? I mean, Dario's making them. Um, I don't know if he will, though. Probably not. Uh, there's been a surge in spy movies lately. Do you like them? I find this subgenre very confusing. Look across the water into the darkness. Look for the fog. Till next week. Um, I don't know. I don't know spy movies because obviously we're having, you know, a Cold War basically right now. So maybe that's why we're having spy movies come out. Uh, I don't, I'm not huge on spy movies. I don't hate them. There's an element of spy movies. I kind of like movies like Day of the Jackal and Black Sunday. Those kind of movies are not necessarily spy movies. They're more like some terrorist trying to do something and they're crazy and scary. Those are good, but I'm not really a spy guy. Um, Christopher Muller, looking cool in your glasses, Dave. You look good, man. Thank you. Um, Ken Coakley, I saw all five faces of the death movies back in the eighties. The first time I saw the first one, a friend of mine bought it to my place and we watched it and then went to the Boston to see Anthrax and Metal Church. Back in ninety eight, a video store I worked at got all five faces of death to rent out of the assistant manager, sent them back because he was offended by them. My best friend, whom I had just met at the time, was glad they were returned. My best friend and I went to work at Suncoast together, they had the faces of death box set and they pulled that. Once again the management was offended by the films. In twenty eleven at the Rock Shock Convention I scored a bunch of Blu rays, including the first faces of death my best friend had a fit she kept telling me to exchange it for something else i still owned it by the time i was hospitalized and i hope it will still be in my possession um i know your review was of part two but i can't remember most of it part one's much better um it's funny how i was offended by the monkey in the restaurant watching people beat the monkey to death not knowing that the waiter was actually the man who owned the monkey as a pet and that the hammers were paper mache and were so weak that one of them broke yeah i mean the first one's mostly fake while the second one isn't and the first one has this weird element of historical value to me um while part two doesn't so that's probably why i was harder on part two than i would have been on part one um dr snuff it's not the swedish release of the last draws it's the danish release from new partner label another world entertainment thank you very much i have a bunch of them here and it's been years since i bought them but i used to buy them all the time before a lot of those movies got released here um then they used to put a lot of the olaf inbox stuff i used to pick up as well so uh graham when you think about it crazy ralph was correct and not crazy i mean you can be correct and crazy just because you're right doesn't mean you're cra not crazy it doesn't work like that uh ali shaib i'm the first comment oh what's up ali good bro and i asked how he's doing he said i hope you're doing well man i didn't know you're in b-rated movies how do i watch them Tubi, some of them, some other things as well. But uh, yeah, I guess we're going to get out of here. All right, here's the update. Not too big, but uh, my Vinegar Syndrome monthly stuff came in. Red Cockroaches. I love the title, right? Saturn's Core. Um, looks bizarre. A Saturn's Core has been putting out a lot of bizarre stuff. This one I don't know. Could be very cool. Uh, title's strange. That's a bizarre one. Like, I've never heard of it, to be honest. Then we have uh, The Cat Creeps. This is one of the Vinegar Syndrome kind of like classic. What was this? One of their new lines. And this is like a classic, you know. Is it a Universal? Yeah, a Universal flick for sure. So I pick up all the Universal horror films on Blu-ray when I can. So, And that's Vinegar Syndrome, so it's a plus. Have good quality there. It's a fairly short film, though, if I'm not mistaken. Then we have Justice Ninja Style. That's right. Uh, VSA, if I'm not... No, this is a VHS uh, shift vest. So, that's crazy. Blink and you die in the dark. What the fuck is that? What the hell is even that? But, uh, yeah, this is probably ridiculous. I haven't got a chance to watch the VHS shift vest ones I picked up yet. So. Ooh, we have nudity on the cover here. Five Women for a Killer. That's obviously a Giallo from um, Vinegar Syndrome. 
definitely cool. Oh, still on there too. Oh, they cover it with like blood this time. Very clever vinegar syndrome. Oh, the next one's a really bizarre one. We have Vacation of Terror 1 and 2. These movies are Mexican horror films, and they are bonkers if nobody's ever seen them. Uh, the second one has like an all-out like music video dance scene, which is very fun. No, these are fun movies. These are pretty cool. The first one's more of like a haunted slasher, if I'm not mistaken. One was 89 and one was 90. These are fun. These are cute movies. Look at a little goblin there. Yeah, the second one I think is a little better. But they're weird, man. You're watching these movies, you're like, I can't believe these exist. I think those will be really popular amongst a certain group of people. We have Curse of the Blue Lights. This movie is bonkers, weird shit. Um, if nobody's ever seen Curse of the Blue Lights, it is weird, man. Zombie, alien thing, I don't fucking know. Um, I remember watching it, and it's just, I remember being like, what is going on? Um, they used to have a DVD from Code Red, so... This is a Blu-ray, of course, Blu-ray from Vinegar Syndrome now, and the dead shall inherit the earth. Gotta love that creature on the front. Uh, this cover was always one that intrigued me when I was younger. And then last, uh, the Hourglass Sanatorium from 1973, and this was one that I've always wanted to see. I'd always like see it pop up on like bootleg sites, and I was like, "What is that, man? That looks crazy." And it's supposed to be really kind of surreal and weird. Um, it's over two hours long. When I watch, when I get to 73, eventually I'll be watching that one for sure. But uh, that is the up update thank you for watching and i'm out of here all right guys thank you very much for watching and as always have a good one